The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Kind of a highlight of uh, where we'll be this week. Monday, Thursday is not there. You get information in both, and that's a come and go time. And uh, we'd love to have you participate and be a part of that. And then uh, the sunrise service is different from the other services. So uh, sunrise service will be in a parking lot out here, bring lawn chairs and uh, um, blankets if we need them, etc. So uh, join us for one of those four services as well as sunrise, so five services next Easter weekend. And uh, we'll enjoy worshiping our risen Savior together. Amen. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, our series is unfinished. Our message is world changers. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. On three days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. Then if you drop to the very end of verse 6, they were shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. These men who've changed the world, these men who've come from all over the world, they have, they have caused trouble all over the world. They are world changers. Father, as we look at the word this morning, and we look at what it means to be one who changes our world, I pray that you would teach us how we might be like that in Jesus' name. Amen. Some things need to change. Some things need to change. I thought about as I read the following story I shared with my Thursday morning men this past week about a husband who needed to change. Uh, He went to the sheriff's department to report that his wife was missing. Uh, My wife is missing, he told the sergeant on duty. She went shopping yesterday, has not returned from, not returned home. What is her height? Gee, I'm not sure. A little bit over five foot. Her weight? I don't know. Not slim, not really fat. Color of her eyes? Never noticed. Color of her hair changes a couple of times a year. I think it's dark brown right now. What was she wearing? Could have been a skirt or shorts. I don't remember. What kind of car did she go in? And then he looked at the sergeant and said, she actually went in my truck. What kind of truck was it? Brand new 2015 Ford F-150 King Ranch. (laughs) Custom matching white cover for the bed. Custom leather seats. Bubble floor match. Trailing uh, package with gold hitch. DVD navigation. Six cup holder. Four power outlets. Special alloy wheels. Off-road Michelins. Wife put a small scratch on the driver's door. At this point, the husband started choking up. The sergeant said, don't worry, buddy. We'll find your truck. (laughs) How many of you have husbands like that? I'm just curious. Uh, Couldn't tell anything about what you wear, what you look like, but they know everything about that vehicle. Amen? You shouldn't amen that one, guys, at all. Uh, Some things need to change. How many of you say our world needs to change? We live in a world that needs to change. I mean, almost every hand goes up. I can't tell you how many times I have heard from you saying, Pastor Gary, the world's a mess. We need it to change. The world's a mess. Let's change it. Actually, you don't say let's change it. The world's a mess. It needs to change. Well, I want to ask this question to you. How would you change it? How would you change the world? I mean, you come to me over and man, Pastor Gary, the world's a wreck. It's a mess. We need to change it. How would you change it? I mean, you're in charge now. How would you change our world? 
Well, some of you would say we need political change. Some of you say we need educational change. Some of you say we need economic change. We need better jobs. We need more education. Some would say we need more laws. Some would say we need less laws. Some would say we need a different person in the White House. Some would say we need term limits. Some of you would say we need to terrorize terrorists. Some of you would say we need to get rid of CNN. Some of you need to get rid of Fox News. Some of you need to get rid of all news. I mean, everybody would have opinions on how to change the world. We come to Acts chapter 17 we find an accusation against Paul, Silas, Timothy, and the Thessalonians. They've changed the world. These guys have come to town and they've changed every place they've been. These guys are world changers. How do you become a world changer? Now, how do you change the world you live in? I mean, they're accused of being world changers. How do you live your life to be labeled that way? Here comes that gal. Here comes that guy. They have changed the world that they live in. How does that happen? The Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head of the Anglican Church, was bemoaning uh, the status of his church in England about 10 years ago. And he said, I quote, wherever Paul went, there were riots, conversions, and changes. Wherever I go, they serve tea and cookies and nothing ever changes. How do you become a world changer? How do you get labeled? Wherever he goes, wherever she goes, things happen and the world changes as a result of them being there. Or when you leave, is it just status quo? Come weal or woe, my status is always quo. When you leave, there's no difference that's been made. When you move out of your neighborhood, when you leave your job and go to work somewhere else, when you graduate from the school that you're in and move on, will they look back and say, that person changed where we were? Well, in Acts chapter 17, that's what we find. We find these men who are world changers, and I'm just going to give you three brief points on things that I observed from the scriptures that made them that way. The first thing is they courageously shared the gospel. They courageously taught the gospel. You may think, what does that have to do with changing the world? I'm going to suggest to you by the end of the sermon, everything everything. The gospel changes everything. Any other change that is made is only temporal. Any other change that happens in our world, educationally, economically, politically, any other change is temporal, but the gospel brings about permanent and eternal change. Permanent and eternal change. If you really want to change jacked up families, if you really want to change the divorce rate, if you really want to change the use of pornography, if you really want to change the statistics on divorce and, uh, and abortion, if you really are serious about that, the only way that true change is going to come is by the transformation of lives through the gospel. That's the only way. It's the only way it's going to happen. Some of you sit in your living rooms and you scream at your TV because you don't like the events of the world and what's happening. And the only suggestion I'm going to give to you that, that will change things permanently is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul taught. That's what they did. So follow along with me. Verse 1 gives us a little geography lesson. It says, And when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, in the previous chapter, when Tim Carr was sharing with us last week, uh, they were on the second missionary journey. They found themselves in the little Greek city, modern Greek city of Philippi. They moved to the next city. (coughs) 
<coughs> excuse me, Amphipolis, and they go from Amphipolis to Apollonia. These are not small cities. These are sizable cities, but Paul spends no time in these cities. Scholars suggest several reasons. I suggest to you, perhaps there are no synagogues, and whenever Paul taught, as was his custom, it says in verse 2, he went to synagogues. He finds himself in the town of Thessalonica, beautiful port city. We had the privilege to be there several years ago when Bev and I led a tour of Paul's journeys. Modern-day city of Salonika. It's there. You can go and visit it, and you can learn much about Paul, and you can see the early days or some of the archaeology from the early days around the time the church was founded. So he finds himself in Salonika, Thessalonica. If you look at verse 2, or the end of verse 1, it says, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So obviously it was important for Paul to find a place where there was a synagogue. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths and reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, note a few things about that. Paul went, when he entered new cities, to the synagogue. Now, if you're a student of the scriptures, you know that Paul had been saved and he was appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles. So if you're an apostle to the Gentiles, why would you show up at a Jewish synagogue? I mean, if your calling is to to be an apostle to a certain people group, uh, why would you go to the synagogue where it's Jewish people and not Gentiles? In Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 2, Paul calls himself a, one who's appointed as an apostle to the Gentiles, but he goes to synagogues every time he's there. Let me suggest to you a few reasons. Number one, first of all, he was credentialed. If you remember, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was credentialed in Judaism. And so when he went from town to town as a rabbi, as a Pharisee, he would have an opportunity and be given a platform from which to speak. Secondly, in the synagogues were God-fearing people, people seeking to know God. So Paul knew wherever he went, he would have the opportunity. If he went to synagogues, he would have the opportunity to talk to people who were seeking to know God. So number one, he was credentialed. Number two, it was filled with people seeking to know God. Number three, Paul was trained in the the Old Testament scriptures. The synagogues used the Old Testament scriptures. He could reason from the Old Testament and teach from the Old Testament about who Jesus was. He had an audience he could show from their very scriptures who the Messiah was. So he had the credentials. They were God-seeking. He could teach the Old Testament scriptures. And fourthly, the gospel is not exclusive. Although Paul was called to be a missionary to the Gentiles and an apostle to the Gentiles, just because you're called to a certain people group doesn't mean you don't share Christ with other people. Right now we have missionaries here in home assignment. We've got the McKissicks in Paraguay. They live in Belton. Let's say one of their neighbors is interested in the gospel. The McKissicks are not going to call me and say, Gary, we only share Christ with Paraguayans, so would you come over here and share Christ with our neighbors? Or we have the Olsons from the Philippines. It'd be crazy for them to say, you you know, Chase, uh, we have some neighbors interested in the gospel, but we only talk to Filipinos about the gospel. Could you come and share the gospel with our neighbors? Or for Seth Chambliss, who'll be here next hour, he's an FCA representative, comes to TBC, and uh, we support them. It'd be crazy if a non-athlete came to Seth and he said, no, 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 I can't talk to you about the gospel. I only deal with athletes. Paul was called the Gentiles, but of course the Jews, he's not exclusive to just the Gentiles. The Jews could hear the gospel as well. Credentialed, God-seeking people, place where he could use the scriptures. He's not exclusive to Gentiles. And if you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses in where? First of all, where? Not a trick question. What does scripture say? Jerusalem. Then Where? Judea and Samaria, and then where? 
outermost parts of the world. Who lived in Jerusalem? Who, was the pri- who were the primary occupants of Jerusalem then and now? Jews. Judea, Samaria, Jews. Paul's now headed to the uttermost. He's going to be meeting Gentiles. The next chap- next part of the chapter, we'll talk about in two weeks when I'm preaching, it's going to be Athens. And we're going to see from that time on, Paul deals with Gentiles uh, tra- almost every step of the way. Then he goes to Rome exclusively almost with Gentiles. And so he's headed in that direction. It's fulfillment of Acts 1-8. Started in Jerusalem, moved to Judea, Samaria, now to the uttermost parts of the world. So Paul goes to those places according to his custom. What did he do when he went in the synagogues? I mean, what did he do? It spells out for us right here. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. The Hebrew, I'm sorry, the Greek word for reason, the New Testament written in Greek, is an interesting word. It's dialogama. Dialogama. What do we get from, what English word do we get from that? Dialogama. We get the word dialogue. So my understanding is this is a give and take time. It's Socratic method. They would ask questions of Paul. Paul might point it out from the scriptures. What they were asking, maybe he would ask questions of them. And he would point out from the scriptures. He reasoned with them for three Sabbaths. And he reasoned with them not from human wisdom, not from his own intellect, not from the extra biblical teachings of Judaism that they adhered to. But he reasoned with them from what? What's it say? From the... Talk to me from the scriptures. Tell me you're reading your Bible. You got your Bible open. You got your apps open. Follow along. We're reading it right from there. Okay. He, he reasoned from the scriptures. So he would take the scriptures and he would show them that Jesus was indeed who he claimed to be. He would show them from the Old Testament prophets. He would show them from the word of God. Maybe he opened to Psalm 53, the suffering servant passage. Maybe open to Psalm 22, and he, he said, look at what Psalm 22 says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and you remember what Jesus said. These guys would have known what Jesus said. It's still the first century, the very quotation of Psalm 22. And so Paul could open the scrolls that they believed in, that they adhered to, that they followed. He could show them in the scrolls who Jesus was. And that's what he did. Look at what it says. He explained and he gave evidence, verse 3, that the Messiah, the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And then he would say, Jesus is that Messiah. And so he would take the Old Testament scriptures in the synagogue and he would show them from their scriptures what the Messiah was to look like. And he would say, by the way, this has been fulfilled in Jesus. Amazing, isn't it? You see, at that time, the Jewish people wanted a Messiah who who would uh, restore their fortunes, who would defeat their enemy, and who would usher in the kingdom. A Messiah that had been killed by the hands of their own people was not a Messiah that they were looking for or that they really wanted. But Paul would take out the scriptures and he would show them, this is what the prophets said of the Messiah. Jesus is the Christos. He's the Christos. May I suggest you took a whole lot of courage to walk into a Jewish synagogue and preach Jesus. It'd be like us walking into a Muslim mosque and preaching Jesus. I mean, we see Paul walking into the synagogue, and even though he had the credentials, he didn't just teach the Old Testament. He said, Let me show you how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why they complain these people have upset the world. I mean, they've come in and changed the world. 
Paul gets chased out of uh, Thessalonica. If you look at the next verses, we'll come back to it in a few minutes. But look at verse five, verse 4. A lot of people believe in Jesus. They follow after him. Verse 5, but the Jews become jealous, took along some wicked men from the market. They formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. They arrest a guy named Jason. He becomes surety for them that he'll, that he'll make sure Paul gets out of town. And uh, they're screaming in verse 7. They said, the problem is it's contrary to Caesar's laws. There's another king they're proclaiming. His name is Jesus. There's a political component to what's happening here. Political component. He's saying Jesus is the one. When they receive the pledge from uh, Jason, they release him and Paul and Silas leave. So you've just been persecuted. You've just been, uh, been, 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 had a mob come against you because of your preaching. And now you head off to the next little town. It's the town of Berea. The town of Berea. Uh, my folks used to go to Berean Bible Church, named after the Bereans. The Bereans were noble-minded. They examined the scriptures much greater than the Thessalonians did. So he goes to Berea. Well, if you've just been chased out of town because you've been in the synagogues preaching about Jesus, what would you do for the next few days? I, I mean, maybe lay low for a few days. Maybe kind of let the, 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 I mean, we're not that far. We're about, 40, we're about 30 or 40 miles away. Uh, what would you do? Would you just lay low? Would you find a place to hide? Would you, well, look at what Paul does. Look at what Silas does. Look at the next verse, beginning in verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, what'd they do? (laughs) They went to the synagogue. Really? Paul, you just got run out of town for going to the synagogue. But Paul, you, you just got... You just had a mob rise up against you. I suggest to you, not only did they have courage, but they had urgency. They had courage and they had urgency. They courageously went in the synagogues and they had urgency about the good news of the gospel. I think we have to ask the question today, what about us? You've got courage to tell others about Jesus? Well, Pastor, I I got courage to do that, really? Then when's the last time you spoke to somebody about him? Not the last time you invited somebody to church, which is a good thing to do and you should. Not when's the last time you... But when's the last time you shared the good news of the gospel with someone else? It takes courage to talk about Jesus in the synagogue and in the marketplace in the academy and in your schools and your neighborhood takes courage Paul and Silas had that courage do you? do you? do you speak openly about yourself? well it may cost me my job so? really? so? It was going to cost them their lives. Do you speak openly of the Savior? It may cost me a sale. So? They may call me a fanatic. Okay? Worse, they may call me a preacher. Duh. You'd be called worse. Do you openly speak of the Savior. 
Dr. Philip Brooks was dying. He had only a few weeks to live, and uh, he didn't receive many visitors, even his closest friends, because he wanted to be with his family in his dying days. One of his acquaintances, an agnostic named Robert Ingersoll, called upon Dr. Brooks, and Dr. Brooks allowed him to come in. Conscious of the privilege of his visit, he was curious the reason behind it. He said, why have you turned away many of your close friends, but you allow me to come in? Dr. Brooks turned to his friend, the agnostic, and said, I feel confident I will see my friends in the next world, but this may be my last chance to see you. That's courage. It's truth. What about you? I'm talking about the Savior. For some of you, let me tell you what courage will look like. Easter Sunday comes. The family is gathered. Nobody in your family ever prays before a meal. Courage this year may be you saying, you know what? Our families are going to pray together and I'll lead. It sounds like a small thing, but for some of you, that's a huge thing. Because nobody's ever done it. For some of you, courage is going to be telling a coworker, a colleague. They've always said, man, you're just a model citizen. You're a good old boy. You're a good boy scout. You're such a sweetheart. You're a great gal. And it's going to be taking that statement and say, I appreciate it so much. Let me tell you why. It's because Jesus, who's alive in me. It's easy to set the accolades of being a good old boy and a sweetheart. But have you ever stopped to tell them why you are that way? Have you told them about your Savior? Have you told them about the one who's given his life for you? For some of you, the courage will be praying with a patient because you've never done that. It's going to be that hurting neighbor that comes over and you've always said, hey, I'll pray for you, but you never prayed with them. And for you, that's going to be a huge leap of faith that you need to take. That's going to be courage. And you may not tell them about the Savior right then, but you'll point them to the Savior and you'll pray with them. Maybe it's sharing Christ with the person you play golf with, hunt with, shop with. Is there an urgency in your evangelism? C.T. Studd said, some want to live within the sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Is there an urgency in your evangelism? I've been asked by many of you and many people, so what's changed in your life in the last two years? I mean, you get diagnosed with a disease that's awful and uh, 30% chance of survival for three more years. What's changed? There's an urgency in my life that, quite frankly, I don't think I've had before. I've always been empathetic. I've always been sympathetic. I've always loved the Savior. I've preached the Savior to you, but there's an urgency in my life. There's an urgency in my life that perhaps I didn't have before. What about yours? Don't wait for some catastrophe to come your way to have that urgency. Recognize the Savior has done so much for you. And the only hope that there is in him, how could you not tell others about him? Got a lot of young people at TBC over the years. We've done hundreds of weddings. And I, I love it when they come to the back. Uh, they'll come to, to the front. It used to be the back door. And, and uh, this young couple, man, they're all smiles. They're all smiles. And uh, she'll say, Pastor Gary, guess what happened? Guess what happened this week? Pastor Gary. There'd be a ring on her finger. I don't know what happened. Oh, Pastor Gary, I mean, you know what happened. 
I mean, they are so excited about being engaged. You don't have to ask an engaged couple. If, if, if They'll tell you. You don't have to ask them. How many new grandparents? How many became grandparents in the past year for the first time? Have people got to ask you about it? I mean, you take pictures. Let me show you. You pull out your phone. I, I've got a whole camera roll. I mean, you don't have to ask about it. What about that kind of excitement for the Savior? Hey, let me tell you about the one who transformed my life. Let me tell you about the one who can transform your life. Let me tell you about the one who's given his life for you. Now, be careful how you do it. It's the story of a barber who came to Christ a number of years ago. This is back when they had uh, straight-edge razors and a leather strap that they sharpened it with. Uh, that's even before my time, so I'm expecting young people to understand it a bit. But they used to have leather. How many of you guys uh, remember that? Yeah, some of you older people. I mean, they get that razor, and so here, this barber had just come to Christ, and he has a real desire to share his faith with uh, his uh, clients. And I mean, he, he, he doesn't know how to get into the gospel presentation. So he is sharpening that razor, sharpening that razor, sharpening that razor. It's the first person who sat in his chair after he got saved. He, he's trying to think, how do I begin that? He finally, after about 10 minutes of sharpening that razor, he puts the razor up to the throat of his customer and says, are you prepared to die? <laughs> Probably not the best opening for the gospel. Okay. But here's the point. I mean, we've been given the good news. And if you really want to know how to change the world, it's through the gospel that transforms one life at a time. It's not changing political structures. It's not changing economic structures. It's not changing educational structures. But it's changing hearts. Because if hearts are changed, lives are changed, and eventually cultures are changed. I mean, you see the change in these folks. I mean, look at what happens. In verse 4, many believe. In verse 12, many believe. And it changed the culture that they get run out of town. I like what Charles Self says. Charles Self says, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need was forgiveness, so God sent to us a Savior. How do you change the world? Well, the world was changed by these guys one life at a time. You want to change jacked up families, you share the gospel with them. You want to keep dads from abandoning their family, they become godly men who recognize the responsibility as fathers. You want, to, you want to cure violence in our streets, it's through the gospel. You want to cure the filth in Hollywood, it's through the gospel. You, you want to help a person's economic situation, it's through the gospel. You want to change the statistics on divorce and abortion and porn use, it's through the gospel. You want to change the hopelessness in inner cities, it's through the gospel. You want to change the rampant materialism that many of us in this congregation have, it's through the gospel. You want to change the hatred between races and socioeconomic class, and between genders and between religions is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when you accept Christ as your Savior, your life is transformed, you love all people, you care for all people, you respond to all people, you become responsible for your family, you become responsible for your economic situation. The gospel transforms hearts. We look like the Savior. Lives are changed. Cultures are changed. Societies are changed. And the world is changed. Amen? That's how 
you change the world. That's how you change the world. One life at a time through the gospel. I wish we had time to parade many of you up here. We did something called cardboard testimonies about five years ago. Many of you participated in that. We're going to do it again in a few weeks. It's all about transformation through the gospel. This is who I was. Poop. This is who I am. Transformation through the gospel. The way you change your world is the way Paul and Silas did. But let me tell you, if you stand up in the marketplace and you say, the cure for education, the cure for economics, the cure for politics, the cure for uh, gender issues, the cure cure for uh, race issues, the the, the cure for sexuality issues, the cure for all those things is Jesus, you're going to meet with a whole bunch of conflict. You're going to have people stand up against you, rail against you, seek to run you out of town just like they did for Paul. They're going to say, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. There's no hope there. You have have just a, a little vision of what's going on in the world. How can you think that? They had conflict because of this. Hey, if you're going to change anything, conflict's going to happen because people hate change. People hate change. Mark Twain said, the only person that loves change is a wet baby. Change produces conflict. Look at what happens, beginning in verse 5. But the Jews becoming jealous. See, they they, they didn't go against Paul theologically. They didn't say, hey, let me show you from the scriptures where this guy is wrong. Let me show you that Jesus is not the Christos, he's not the Messiah. That's not what they did. They were jealous. They didn't, they didn't pull out the scrolls and say, let me refute what Paul is saying. What they did is they got a mob of people, created a scene, created a riot, had Jason arrested, and he was surety so that uh, Paul would be told Paul was driven out of town. And so that, they didn't reason from the scriptures. All they did was become jealous over the battle. Jealousy. I'm sure nobody here struggles with jealousy, so I won't even talk about it. Right. Jealousy. Your friends go on vacation, you stay home. Feel a little jealous? Everybody's out on a date, you're in the dorm. Feel a little envious? They lose 10, you, they lose 10, you gain 20. My story. I'm not jealous, I'm just bitter. They drive a new car, you drive a clunker that barely makes it out of the driveway. Your team won, your team lost, their team won. Jealous. Uh, One author says this, Jealousy is not a moderate or harmless sin. It was Eve's jealousy of God that sparked her pride, to which Satan successfully appealed. She wanted to be like God, to have what he has, to know what he knows. Jealousy was an integral part of the first great sin. The next great sin mentioned in Genesis is murder caused by Cain's jealousy of Abel. Joseph's brother sold him to slavery because of jealousy. Daniel was thrown to lion's den because of jealousy. Jealousy caused the eldest brother to resent the father's attention to the prodigal son. Get a little envy, jealousy, coveting in your heart somewhere, somehow. You walk in and say, I wish my marriage was like theirs. I wish my family had it together like that family. I wish I lived in that neighborhood. I wish I could go on that vacation. 
I wish my proposal had been accepted, not hers. I wish my project had been funded, not theirs. Anybody's toes I haven't stepped on yet? Jealousy. Chuck Swindoll says, Oh, decimate a friendship, dissolve a romance, destroy a marriage, shoot tension through the ranks of businesses, nullify unity on a team, ruin a church, separate friends and family, foster competition, bring about bitterness, finger pointing among talented, capable friends. With squinty eyes, jealousy will question motives, deplore success, make one suspicious and narrow and negative. Jealousy. They're jealous because people are leaving. They're following and following someone else. Jealousy. Churches are the worst. Get jealous over the success of another church. We need to pray for other churches. Thank God for churches in our community who preach the gospel and that are growing. Praise God for that. I've dealt with jealousy from other pastors for so long. I'm glad some other churches are doing well now. They can have a little bit of that. Jealousy. Hey, you really want to change the world? Pray for persecution. That's what happens here. Paul gets driven out of town, then he goes to Berea. And what do they do there? Look at verse 13. When the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul in Berea, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. The brethren sent Paul out as far as the sea. Silas and Timothy were there. Then Paul, got a, then Paul uh, headed out for Athens. I mean, Paul was being persecuted. You really want to change the world you live in? Persecution will do that. Persecution changes things like nothing else. China is the greatest modern-day example of that. In 1948, when the Cultural Revolution came about, missionaries were booted out of China. We estimate there were 2 to 3 million believers in China. Since that time, missionaries had not been in China. The gospel, under per, our, our brothers and sisters in China being persecuted, the gospel has exploded. Now we estimate there aren't two to three million believers in China. We estimate there are two to three hundred million believers in China. Persecution purifies, persecution refines, and persecution produces growth of individuals and growth of the church. So if you really want to keep complaining about the way things are here, you share the gospel and you pray for a little persecution. You ready to do that? So now let me ask you, how many of you want to change our nation through sharing the gospel and giving a little persecution? See, it's one thing to vote for somebody in office or in or out of office, raise or lower taxes, scream about the news, but it's a whole other thing when it rests upon our shoulders to present the good news of the gospel. Because here's the reality, my friends. They had conflict because of the gospel, but the world can be changed only by the gospel. So the next time you're watching the news, reading what's happening next in the world, saying this place is a mess, we need to change, ask God to make you a world changer. And you become a world changer by seeing the gospel change one life at a time, which eventually changes one culture, one person at a time, one city at a time, one state at a time, one nation at a time, and ultimately the world.
The year was 1853. James Calvert was a recent seminary graduate. He felt called to the Fiji Islands. The Fiji Islands were inhabited by cannibals. No one had gone there with the good news of the gospel because of fear of their lives. Calvert took with him four other men. When the ship's captain got ready to let them uh, leave the ship, when they got to the Fiji Islands, he said, I'm pulling out as quickly as I can. You men can go. You will lose your lives and the lives of those you've taken among you from these savages. Calvert looked at him and said, we died before we ever left port. He died for the gospel. Over the next quarter of a century, there was a remarkable transformation among the tribesmen of those islands. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds were saved. Calvin's fruit and commitment to Christ changed the Fiji Islands. In fact, when he died on his tombstone, it was written, none of us believed when he came, none of us did not believe when he died. What a powerful testimony. Several years after his death, another English slip landed. The captain met with the head chief of the largest tribe on the Fiji Islands, and after they had spent most of a day together, he remarked rather critically to the chief, he said, you're a great leader, but it's a pity you were taken in by those missionaries. No one believes the Bible anymore in the story of Christ dying on a cross. We know better now than to accept that story. The old chief's eyes flashed. He's pointed to the captain and he said, you see that rock over there? He said, it's there where we smashed the heads of our victims. You see the furnace next to it? It's there where we roasted the bodies of our enemies. If it hadn't been for those good missionaries and the love of Jesus that changed us from cannibals into Christians, we would have eaten you by now. (laughs) How do you change a world? Through the gospel. See, when Jesus transforms our heart, it's permanently and eternally changed. And it impacts a community, impacts us culture, impacts a society, it impacts a world. So when you come to me and say, Pastor Gary, the world's a mess, I'm going to say, yes, it is. Let's go tell people about Jesus. Father, we thank you that the good news of the gospel is news of transformation. News that changes hearts. The gospel keeps men faithful to their wives. It keeps wives faithful to their husbands. It keeps young women who are pregnant from aborting their babies. It keeps fathers from abandoning their families. It, It keeps parents from abusing kids. It takes addictions and allows us to be freed from their bondage. The good news of the gospel and transformed hearts make us responsible workers, changing economic situations. The good news of the gospel makes us generous people to you, God, through the church and through others. The good news of the gospel transforms cultures. God, help us to be change agents and world changers. You're here today and you don't know if Jesus is your Savior. Maybe you're a good person, but you don't know if you're truly a godly person. You don't know if Christ has ever truly saved you. I invite you to pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I want to know with certainty that you're my Savior. And so I ask you this day for the forgiveness of my sin. 
I ask you to change my heart, oh God. And many of us in this room know Christ. Do you need courage to tell others about the Savior? Do you really believe that true transformation of our world comes through him? If so, how can we be silent? In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.